In the name of God, most merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajahum. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to the series entitled Life, the Islamic Answer in which we're trying to go through various Islamic texts to see which Islamic teachings and principles we can extract from them uh, in order to understand the spirit of our religion and apply it to the complexity of today's world. The first theme that we've been looking at is the theme of knowledge, knowledge and reason in Islam. We looked at the importance of knowledge the importance of Abl or reason and on the opposite side the alternative Jahl foolishness and ignorance we established all of those uh, teachings both from the hadith from the narrations as well as the Holy Quran and uh, once we did that we said that there are two conditions that make knowledge Islamic or if we embark on this journey, we want to make sure that we're embarking from the right place so that we don't have to go back and redo something or do it differently. So regardless of which of these two we look at, whether you know, we want to do it by meeting all the conditions or if, there are, if there's a process, we want to begin from the beginning of that process, uh, the answer to both of these brings us back to the notion of sincerity or intention. If we're acquiring knowledge, the first step is making sure that we're doing it with the right intentions. And we said that within that topic of intention or sincerity of intention, uh, we can look at it from all sorts of different angles. Of course, the second condition is action. So that once knowledge has been acquired, we need to translate that knowledge into action. It needs to be transformative knowledge or transformational knowledge, which means that it doesn't stay as data or information in our mind at a theoretical level. Knowledge in Islam has to translate into some sort of action, either internal action, spiritual action, an action of the heart, of the spirit, or action of you know, outside world and doing something with it. And inshallah, we will, the next topic, once we're done with uh, intentions and sincerity, uh, the next topic that we're addressing is the second condition of action, to really understand what do we mean by action. So in the topic of intentions, we looked at it from two points of view. The first one is intention as it relates to knowledge specifically. And this is making sure that we are acquiring the knowledge for all the right reasons. So that we don't want to acquire the knowledge for the wrong reason or do something that we're not supposed to be doing with that knowledge. Okay, so that was the first angle from which we looked at ikhlas and niyyah. Okay, as it relates directly to knowledge. And given the interest in the topic, we said that we're also going to spend a bit of time looking at niyyah and ikhlas, intention and sincerity in general in Islam, beyond just knowledge and the acquisition of knowledge. 
So what does Islam say in general about niyyah, about intention, and about ikhlas, sincerity? So we've been looking at, um, at that question from a number of angles. Some of the big conclusions or the big points, and inshallah, as we do with every topic in this series, at the end of this, we will spend time going through all the principles that we've extracted from this. But the big points that we've covered until now. Perhaps the most important is that intention or sincerity of intention is basically presented to us in the Islamic teachings as the ultimate purpose of our worship. The ultimate purpose behind religion, behind faith, behind belief, behind rituals of worship. No, no matter what you look at, the ultimate purpose behind all of this is that you have, you achieve the highest level of sincerity, the highest level of ikhlas, and the, the cleanliest or the cleanest, purest form of intention towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in everything that you do. This is the ultimate purpose behind all belief, all faith, all worship, and so on and so forth, religion in general. So I think that's one very big conclusion that we have to keep in mind. A second one is that, like many, in fact, all uh, of big notions, big themes, big topics in our religion, it has many levels. You can accept and be happy with a much lower level. You have to meet a minimal threshold, and then you can be said to have you know, proper intentions for doing something. Or you can try to achieve the highest levels of it. And we always go back to saying, you know, they, these are unlimited because they represent your level of proximity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There is no end to that. You can always go higher. And as part of our exploration of just how high one can go in terms of purifying their intentions and having a high level of sincerity, we uh, established a few points that I think inshallah are important to keep in mind. One of them is that those who achieve these very high levels of sincerity are going to be people who don't really care about what others have or what others may give them or bring to them because their entire focus is on the relationship between themselves and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we said that even goes one level higher in others the, the very you know elite few who can actually make it that high in levels and ranks of sincerity. And those are the ones who actually dislike being praised, dislike that others say you have done good uh, or that whatever it may be, the complimenting, the praising, the attention, the, they dislike it. It's not that they're neutral or indifferent or that that's not what they're working for. But if it comes, you know, it, it came and I didn't, go out of my way to get it, but if it came, that, that's good, it's an extra bonus. And in certain cases, those who are able to go even higher in their levels of intentions and sincerity, they're going to dislike that, and we saw the ahadith related to this. The other, I think, important point had to do with how not only is it possible, but there's almost an expectation or a recommendation that those who want to be of a higher level of faith, that they apply this notion of having good intentions to everything they do. 
So we've been talking about knowledge, so you want to make sure that you apply that to the acquisition of knowledge and the use of knowledge. But even beyond that, and we saw the ahadith, they talk about things as simple as eating and sleeping, where the Holy Prophet was telling Abu Dhar, for instance, that even when you eat and when you sleep, make sure that you have a good intention. And we said, you know, this is a very deep, uh, there's a very deep way of looking at this. One way is, and, and this is perhaps the, the most obvious aspect of this, is that everything that you're doing, that you're now doing as an act for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So on the one side, you're getting reward. It becomes something godly, it becomes something divine. Something that may look trivial is in fact becoming an act of worship. It's becoming something sacred because of the intention behind it. The same act done by some, someone else with that, without that intention, to them it will be something very trivial. They don't even think about it. could be almost second nature. You eat, you sleep for instance. But in your case, because you have applied this intention to what you're doing, now there's a direction to it. There's a purpose behind it. You're doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That changes entirely what you're doing. Even though in appearance externally, there's nothing that changed. You're doing the exact same thing. So this is something that one, good to understand, but more importantly, inshallah, that we can start applying. It's something very easy. It simply requires a little bit of effort and discipline, but it's something that doesn't take any time. Right? You'd simply need to be aware, to direct your attention to that and tell yourself, I'm really going to try to at least add a moment, a single instant to everything I do. And that's simply to make sure that there's an intention behind everything that I'm doing. Okay, so there is definitely a spiritual, religious, theological, otherworldly aspect to this. And this is the more obvious one. But we said there's a second dimension to this that inshallah we did not miss we talked about it a, a little bit last time but this is something we also have to keep in mind there's a reason behind behind this that we are to add an intention to everything that we do intention basically means that you're fully aware of what you're doing that you understand the purpose from what you're about to do so sleeping you change the purpose from you know a biological need you're now making it something that you get rewarded by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for because you're resting your body because God wants you to. So that you're better at going back and doing the things that you're supposed to do. The same thing for sleeping could be the same thing even for playing and, and entertainment. So long as you're not doing something haram or you're not going beyond the bounds, you know, like it's not wasting your time. You're simply resting. Everybody needs rest. There is no issue with that in itself, right? So inshallah, all of that is going to be things that we keep in mind and that we learn how to apply all of this for and uh, in the future, okay? The idea is that this awareness can be looked at from the point of view of how we live our lives. The way we live our lives currently, we kind of get influenced, we get pushed, we get uh, uh, pressured, all, however you want to say all of this, all of this is happening to you and so you live in a passive way. You live in a way where things are happening to you. Your thoughts, your acts, your deeds, all of it is happening to you. If you're adding the layer of intention, everything that you do, you do with awareness. You do because you have a purpose behind it. 
This takes you out from being in a state of passiveness, where things are just happening to you and you're going with the flow, to a state of you intending on purpose to do something or not. I intend to sleep, I intend to eat, I intend to spend X amount of time resting, for instance. No issue with that. But now everything that you're doing, you're doing with intention. You're doing with awareness. You're no longer, as we said, the sheep of the world, the sheeple of the world. You're no longer passive. You're no longer being influenced and led and directed. Everything that you're doing, you're doing with intention, consciously. You, if you do it, it's because you've thought about it and you've put an intent and a purpose behind it, and that's why you're doing it. You're not doing it because you're being pushed or pressured or influenced, sometimes unconsciously, without even your full awareness of what's happening and why you're doing something. And so if we apply this to what am I eating and why am I eating it? Why am I wearing these clothes? Why am I driving this car? Why am I getting this job? Why am I buying this house? This could be applied to everything. Because you're adding a layer of intention, this is going to force you with time to really explore, to really examine those intentions a little bit more closely. Is this intention really godly? Is there a di divine dimension to this? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is really going to reward me for this, for what I'm about to do, and how I'm about to do it, or no? If you start applying this to everything, your life entirely, from beginning to end, becomes a divine life, becomes an Islamic life. It's not like you have a moment in the day where you stand and worship, and that becomes your divine moment in the day, and then you go back to the non-divine aspect or the non-religious aspect of your daily life and you go on. No, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to be present with you every step, every act, every instant, because you've added that intention to it. And so this completely changes how we live our lives because you live fully aware. There's an intent behind everything I'm doing. And this, inshallah, also becomes a reason to improve, to self-motivate. It's internal. This is all between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No one knows what's going on internally. No one knows why you're choosing this, or, but you're constantly going through that process of self-examination. So inshallah, all of that... Uh, is clear. We talked about it last time, so this is just part of the recap. And we said, and the hadith were very explicit about this, that you also, because you do this, I, I believe it was from Imam Ali alayhi salam, where he was talking about how you become someone who is not distracted, regardless of what your eyes see, regardless of what your ears hear, regardless of what crosses your mind, or what your heart uh, may desire or want, all of those things are not going to be too much of a distraction to push you away, to take you away from the Imam was talking about, the remembrance of Allah. Because you're constantly in a state of examining your intentions. Why are you doing? How are you doing? Is it truly for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not? Is there any way for you to receive any reward from Allah for what you're about to do or not? Right? Constantly in that state then you're constantly in a state of remembrance. And inshallah, in the future, we'll talk a lot more about uh, this state of dhikr or remembrance and what the whole Qur'an says about it and the ahadith. And we looked a little bit, we spent a bit of time the last time we met on looking at a passage from a few things, but two, I think, that are can be considered practical examples that bring a lot of this together uh, in something uh, more practical. Uh, the first one was 
the covenant or the mandate of Imam Ali السلام, to Malik al-Ashtar. And we saw how in the end he basically tells him, while you do have to uh, make sure that you dedicate time and the best of times to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he tells him the truth is everything you're doing is actually a worship, a form of worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so long as it is meeting your duties. And that was an important condition that the Imam is adding here. So long as the people are prospering, so long as you're not harming anyone and that you're still fulfilling your duties, then everything that we've been talking about, whether it's writing letters in answer to your officers or helping out in the governance of your, uh, over the land that you're supposed to govern, all of that is acts of worship. And so this brings us back to what we've been talking about, which is here is a confirmation in a, in a very practical way from Imam Ali السلام, to Malik al-Ashtar that any act, as trivial as it may seem, can actually become an act of worship. So the Imam says, but that does not remove the sacredness, the holiness of the time that you're going to dedicate to pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, for instance. And that's why he tells them, make sure that you choose the best of times, the most appropriate of times, and you keep that relationship between you and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala always uh, intact. And the second story that we have looked at is very quickly a very small passage of the story of Prophet Musa السلام, and how he was invited to come to supper and he did not want to sit and eat in fear that this may be in exchange for the service that he had done because he had done it with the pure intention that this is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is only for God that I'm going to give these two women uh, water. I'm really helping. This tells us that there was an intention behind his act. This is what we've been talking about. And so he doesn't want anything to come and modify that. He doesn't want anything to come and jeopardize, threaten the relationship he has with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what he gets out of helping someone with that right intention because maybe in exchange of it now, He's going to get a supper, he's going to get a better relationship, he's going to get a praise and a compliment, and then suddenly what was entirely for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is now becoming mixed and spread out, spread thin with other things mingled with it. For instance, praise and compliments and attention and a supper, for instance, in this case. So, uh, inshallah, today we continue. So before we jump into the uh, the next section, as you remember, we have uh, we dedicate sections to to look at the the topic from different angles. So the next one was going to be about um, what is more important, action or intention. So before that, there was just one hadith. There is more, but I thought at least one hadith, just to really highlight. I think we're in a good place now. We've justified it enough, so we don't need to spend too much time explaining this relationship that we talked about. That first you acquire the knowledge, but then you also have to make sure that that knowledge is going to meet those two conditions we've been talking about. It has to be with the right intention, truly with sincerity, you acquire it and you use it for that which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to use it for. And secondly, that it leads to, it translates into action. Okay, so I thought that I would just share one hadith and then we go to the next topic. So this narration actually comes to us from the Holy Prophet in which he says, kullihum halka illa al 
those who carry knowledge are all doomed except the ones who act on that knowledge okay so that's the first principle and those who act are also all of them doomed anyone who does any deed any act any action they are all doomed the holy prophet says except except those who do those actions with sincerity with sincere intentions the holy prophet says so in arabic this basically translates as and those who have that sincerity they are rare they are but a few okay they're they're scarce so those who carry knowledge are all doomed except those who act on that knowledge and those who act are all doomed except those who act with sincerity and those with sincerity are very rare so inshallah this is why this is a very good hadith that explains the whole progression of the series until now the reason why we began with knowledge and then once we covered enough of knowledge we move to intention and sincerity and why the next topic is going to be action right so this is very well formulated explicitly stated by the holy prophet the next uh, section had to do with this question of the importance of intentions and sincerity versus the importance of action and it's very appropriate because as we said the the series is going towards action next okay and since the beginning we've talked about people are acquiring knowledge so you're wondering okay what do i do with it which type of knowledge so the type of knowledge is going to be after uh, the action inshallah so in the first uh, hadith from the holy prophet again he says if you perform a deed any deed Make sure that the, the deed that you're performing is done exclusively and purely for the sake of God. Because God, because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, لَا يَقْبَلُ مِنْ عِبَادِهِ الْأَعْمَالِ إِلَّا مَا كَانَ خَالِصًا Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not accept deeds from his servants except those deeds that were that are done with sincerity that are done exclusively for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so there's a few things that we extract from the hadith if you perform an act make it purely and exclusively for God because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepts those deeds that are performed exclusively for God for him and so this is, first of all, this is one example among many. There are many narrations that state this. And the reason I sometimes say there are a lot of narrations that state the same thing is to say basically that this is a very well uh, anchored and important teaching. When the Holy Prophet, for instance, talks about a topic again and again in 20, 30, 40, 50 different instances, of course, it tells us that there is a need for the Holy Prophet to talk about it again, either because of its importance, either because 
there's difficulty, there's ambiguity, this is something that people are struggling with, or something that human nature will struggle with, for instance. And so, there, sometimes I will mention these. So this is an example of a hadith where you see similar hadith, sometimes with slightly different formulations, slightly different wording, but they're repeated again and again. So the idea, we can rest assured that it's present as a principle in Islam. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only accepts those deeds that are exclusively and sincerely for him. Okay, so the Holy Prophet is saying, make sure, act for God, but make sure that your actions are exclusively for God and not for any other reason, any other purpose. The part that here we we can add to the hadith, because I think there's, as always, there's kind of an obvious, evident meaning to the hadith. We could also look at the hadith. Does it mean that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is simply going to reject all of our a'mal? There's another way that I think for people like us, inshallah, we are not munafiqeen, we're not kuffar. When we do, we are really doing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But our acts may be mingled. The intention behind the act may be mixed up. That it's not entirely, purely, exclusively for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So this is what we have to look at. And here, there are really two big alternatives that I would say are the issues for people like us. The first one is that Yes, sometimes we may do something and the intentions are not sincerely for God. There's a lack of sincerity in the intention that it is truly for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's one form of issue that we have to look out for. The second form of issue is not that there is a lack of sincerity. It's not that my intention is half for God and half so that people see me. That's the first case. And the second case is, there's a distraction. There's a complete lack of intention. And this is a lot more the case where you're performing acts of worship, but you're performing them as rituals, empty rituals. You stand to pray, but there's nothing in your prayer that if you were really to examine your prayer, in which you would say, yeah, this part was really for God. This one, this part, this full rak'ah, this half of the prayer was actually really me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it was an intimate personal relationship between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. No, the entire prayer, my mind is wander, wandering off. I am standing, I am performing my ruku', I am performing my sujood. But the intention is not there. I'm absent-minded. I fast the entire month of Ramadan but there is no connection with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala during the month. I go through the motions. I may walk around the Kaaba. I go through the motions, but I'm not thinking about God. I'm not thinking of why I'm doing this and how this is bringing me closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't transform me. So, of course, there's an issue that at the spiritual level, there is a meaning. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not just give us these acts of worship just to see whether, you know, you stand and sit and prostrate and lean and walk around and run between Safa and Marwa as though these are empty, blind rituals. There is a deeper meaning behind them. So if you're missing out on the intention and the awareness and the consciousness, you're not benefiting from the, the intended outcome of these acts of worship. When 
the Quran speaks about the prayer. It says, "Inna salata tanha anil fahshai wal munkar." Prayer itself is going to forbid from fahsha, from munkar, from those things that are obscene, from those things that are wrong, unjust, bad, whatever it may be. Well, you look at someone, they pray, and they can still do obscene things. And they can still engage in bad behavior. Before and after prayer, nothing changed. Okay, well, there's something wrong here. Either the verse is wrong, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lied to us by saying, or what I just did was not really meeting the definition of what a salah is because the outcome of the salah is not being felt so there's something wrong here so there are consequences there are repercussions there are outputs related to the a'mal that we miss out on because we're not performing the a'mal fully with intent, with that awareness, with that consciousness. Okay, so that's one part of it. The other part of it that I think is even worse is that the hadith says Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only looking at the part that you're doing really for him. That's the part that he's going to reward you for. This part he considers his. The rest is not really for him. When you're praying but the prayer is not directed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, well, you can't expect thawab for this. I give tawaf for the part that is exclusively for me. So this is the second part. And this is the part that becomes a lot more dangerous. Does it mean based on Islamic law that you haven't prayed? No. You still get the check mark that you prayed, you performed your prayer at the fiqh level. This is not at the fiqh level. This is at the level of your soul. This is at the level of your akhlaq. This is at the level of your spiritual perfection, spiritual purification, cleanliness closeness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, there's a very severe issue here. And for all of us, I would say, there's an issue at the level of you putting in the work, but not seeing any results out of it. You're going to pray for 50 years, but it's as though you never prayed in the manner in which you conduct yourself. The prayer is not leading to anything. It doesn't transform you. It doesn't change anything, whether you pray or not, whether you fast or not. And this is opening the door to a very important topic. We're not talking about it now, but that's the topic of rituals, rituals in Islam. What's the point of the rituals? Is the point of the ritual simply to perform the ritual? So I stand and I sit and I prostrate and I do my ruku, I do my sujood. Is that the point that you perform physically, that you move your body as you're intended? or that you go hungry, is that the ritual and that's it? You, you, you fully performed and met the act of worship? Or is there more? Okay, so that opens the door to a whole discussion that we're not gonna have right now. But this is the, the power and the, the, the significance that you get or the importance that you get from the niyyah. The more you are present and aware of what you're doing, the more you're going to avoid falling into the blind, empty rituals. Because you know why you're doing it. It has meaning to you. That you bow your head to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That you put your forehead on the ground for Him. That's different than someone who's just performing the movements. And if you don't understand, this is when you have to go and learn. Go and ask. Because your starting position is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wouldn't have asked me to do this if it has no meaning. There has to be something deeper here. 
I'm just not seeing it. As much as I reflect on it, I think about it, I'm not seeing anything here. It's probably there. You just need to go and get a bit of education on it. Go learn about it. Or think about it more. And if you do it with sincerity, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, He will share that light. He will put that light in your heart. Okay? The second hadith that I have here is very related to all of this. So now that we've said this, we try to always lay the foundation at a rational level, and then we show that this is not from something that we're just making up. Imam Ali alayhi salam says, لَيْسَتِ الصَّلَاةُ قِيَامُكَ وَقُعُودُكَ Prayer is not your standing and your sitting. From the outside, that's what it looks like you're doing. Someone who looks at someone praying, they simply look like they someone they're standing, they're sitting. That's why some people say prayer is good for you. It's like yoga movements, for instance, right? Imam Ali salam says, "The prayer Your prayer is not your standing and your sitting. Your prayer is your sincerity, or the part." that you are performing with sincerity to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that's your prayer. وَأَن تُرِيدَ بِهَا اللَّهَ وَحْدَهِ And that you desire or that your purpose from performing it is the sake of God. You're performing it exclusively for God. The more you do that or the portion of the prayer that you perform with this intention, that's the portion that is called prayer. The portion that is done with sincerity, that's the part that Imam Ali says, you call that salah. That's the salah. In, in a lot of our cases, unfortunately, we don't go through these notions of these hadith and these teachings first, right? You may spend 10 years studying how to perform the prayer. How do you stand? And how do you sit? And how do you perform the ruku? And how do you perform the sujood? All of it important or no? Absolutely important. Because I want to pray like Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to pray. It's very important. I don't want to make up my own prayer. If there's a dedicated way Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to pray, that's what I'm going to do. Exactly like you would do if you had a close, intimate, personal relationship with someone. And you know that they like something in a certain way. You go out of your way to make it that way. Right? You want to impress them for how well you did it. What you present to them. Okay, it's the same thing with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want to understand how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to stand, wants you to perform ruku', wants you to perform sujood. Extremely important. And that's why we have in our fiqh that you go too much outside of what is within the bounds and the salah becomes invalidated. Right? It's no longer considered a salah. But all of that is the external ritual of it. Here the imam is talking about something else. He's like, okay, you, you understand all of that now? Okay, yes, you do have to stand and you have to perform rukur, you have to, that's not the prayer. That is all important, but that is not your prayer. The prayer is something happening inside of you. It's your awareness that you're performing all of this because Allah wants you to. And so you do it exclusively for God. That part of your prayer where you're aware of this, that is part that Imam Ali says, that is your salah. That is performed with ikhlas. That you only want the sake of God. That you only want God with that prayer. That's the part that Imam Ali says. That's your prayer. لَيْسَتَ الصَّلَاةُ قِيَامَكَ وَقُعُودَكَ إِنَّمَا الصَّلَاةُ إِخْلَاصُكَ 
وأن تريد بها وجه الله وحده أو تريد بها الله وحده The next hadith from the Holy Prophet there are a few hadith here all of them very similar wording the Holy Prophet says the intent or the intention of the believer is better than their deed than their act their action and the act the deed of the hypocrite, of the two-faced person, their deed is better than their intention. Then another narration, the same wording the Holy Prophet uses, but he says, uh, He says, The person who is wicked, the person who is vile, their action is better than their intention, which is the opposite of the faithful believer. In another hadith, the Holy Prophet says, Niyatul Mu'mini Khairun Min Amalih wa Niyatul Kafiri Sharrun Min Amalih. This one is different. In the other ones, it's always Khairun Min Niyatih. But it's because this one, he flipped it and he's talking about the intention. The deed of the person who is not doing it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the deed will always be better than the intention. So the person who is munafiq, the hypocrite, the person who is fajr, the wicked, vile person, the person who is a disbeliever, an unbeliever, a kafir, their action will always be better than their intention. This is the second part. And everyone who performs an act, they perform based on their intent. And we talked at length about this in the belief series, this importance of understanding the relationship between deed and action and intention. And we said everything that a human being does, every act that a human, human being performs, whether in religion or outside of religion, everything derives out of their intentions. They have intentions behind them, conscious or unconscious. And that's where you link back to the topic of a worldview. What's your worldview? Or what's your, to use the religious terminology, what's your aqidah? How do you understand the world? Is it a world where God is in the middle? God is at the center? Is it a theistic worldview? Or there's no God? And so it's an atheistic worldview or somewhere in between or depending on which kind of God you believe in, a deistic worldview, theistic worldview. There is a God but He's not personal. He doesn't know that you exist. Right? As some scientists, for instance, believe. There are forces of nature, but they're not aware of your personal existence. And whereas in our religions, we believe, no, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a personal relationship with you. He is fully aware, and your awareness actually comes from Him. He has put that in you for reasons. In any case, so let's go back to that part. Someone who has faith, someone who has belief, their intentions are always going to be better than their actions. It's almost as though no matter how well you try to perform your actions, they're never going to measure up to be good enough to match what you wish you could be doing. 
Your intention is so good that your act, your external act, your deed, can't match the intention. So it's always shorting, fall, far, falling short of your intent as a believer. The person who does not have that belief, they're focused on what? They're focused on what it looks like from the outside. They don't have that internal drive that this is how it has to be and this is how good it has to be. There's no intent or there's a distorted intent or there's a vile intent. It's a, the, the opposite of what they're doing. My intent is really bad. What's hidden inside me is that I don't believe in this religion, but I'm going to pretend. So I'm going to stand here and pray the best of prayers. This was happening at the time of the Holy Prophet. These are the munafiqeen. They stand with the prayer, uh, at the prayer with the Holy Prophet and then they turn around and work with the, the mushrikeen trying to kill him, trying to assassinate the Prophet. This was happening. And no one could tell. They prayed the best of prayers. Right? This is the, the open nifaq that was well known and we have many, many verses of the Quran talking about this. So, what's the intent? In this case, there is no intent. Or the intent is horrible. I'm praying, but my real intent, my real reason and purpose for praying is to get closer to the Prophet so that I can assassinate him. Externally, beautiful prayer. Anyone who would look would say, that's how you're supposed to pray. See that ruku'ah, you see that sujood, you see how you stand. That's really good. But internally, it's the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing. And so the Holy Prophet says, the intent of the person who believes is always going to be better than their action, than their deed. And the opposite is true. The person who does not, who lacks this belief, who lacks this faith, if you look at their external deed, the deed always looks better than what's happening inside. As we said, sometimes it's because there is no intention. I do it because I do it. Right? And we saw examples of that. If you have no belief, you do it because, I don't know, it's a biological need. So you do it. There's simply no intention behind it. It's, you're oblivious. You go with the flow. You don't think about it. There's a lack of intent. Or there's an intent, and it's a really bad one. Or it's an incomplete one. I do it so that people look at me. I do it so that I build a network. I give thousands or millions or billions of dollars so that I create an empire and I have a stronger power over people and I network with people and so that my name is well known. There's no God in any of this. None of this is so, so that I purify my soul. None of this so that I become a better human being. This is a business transaction that is entirely worldly. If this is what I'm doing, then I should not expect a divine reward for this because the intent, where am I directing my energy when I'm doing this? The intent is, I'm doing this so that I get a social reward, so that I get a, a historical reward, so that people say and they erect statues in my name and they build schools in my name and streets in my name. Okay, that's all good, but those are selfish, egotistical reasons. These are not the reasons why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants you to do good. He gets nothing out of you doing good or bad. This is for your own good. You're supposed to transform your soul with this. So if it's not leading to that, if it's not transforming your soul, 
The issue is the intent behind it. It's the same act. Someone else is performing it and you are performing it, but the intent behind it is different. And then, as we said, the Holy Prophet says, And everyone acts, acts based on uh, their intention. And so we said the actions that we perform are always performed as a derivative of, they derive. Your actions derive out of your intention. And the hadith that we just looked at basically are saying that if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or Imam Ali salam says the part of your salah that is salah is your, the sincerity, the sincere part, then the same thing is going to apply everywhere. It's only the sincerity that's going to count. Apply this now to every act, ritual of religion or not. This is going to be the case. The next hadith says uh, from the Holy Prophet He says, نِيَّةُ الْمُؤْمِنِ أَبْلَغُ مِنْ عَمَلِهِ وَكَذَلِكَ الْفَاجَرِ Niyatul Mu'min, the intent of the believer, the intention of the faithful, is more eloquent, expresses better who they are, what they do, what they stand for, than their deed. What really matters, who you really are, is at the level of your intentions. What is speaking about who you are, what you stand for, what you're trying to do, is not really the external action. It's what's happening internally. In another hadith from the Holy Prophet again he says, Inshallah we're gonna see some hadith related to this. The intention of the believer is better than their deeds. We talked about that. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will grant a reward to the servant for their intention that he does not grant for their deed. And there's a reason for this. And this explains what we've been talking about. And that is because there cannot be any show in my intention because the intention is just between me and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala no one knows about it no one can know about it the part of the niyyah is pure and sincere for God Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at that and the Imam, the Holy Prophet here he says and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards you is going to reward some people only for their intentions the intentions were really good the act the act may be mixed up. The act may be mixed up. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward the niyyah in a way that he does not reward the amal. And amal, deed, actions may be mixed up between sincerity and showing off. The next hadith. First, the general rule. Imam Ali says, There may be an intent that is better than a deed. That's a general rule, and we just saw examples of that. A little bit more specific. Imam Ali says, Describing the believer. He says, 
the believer, as part of their description, Imam says, he never attains the good that he intends to accomplish. Okay, so that part is clear. Then he says, يَنْوِي كَثِيرًا مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَيَعْمَلُ بِطَائِفَةٍ مِنْهِ He intends to perform much good and he completes a part of it, a portion of it. مِنَ الْخَيْرِ وَيَعْمَلُ بِطَائِفَةٍ مِنْهِ وَيَتَلَهَّفُ عَلَى مَا فَاتَهُ مِنَ الْخَيْرِ كَيْفَ لَمْ يَعْمَلْ بِهِ And the part that he was not able to complete he intended to do the good, but he was not able to perform that good. He says, but he remains regretful, in sorrow, in grief, in longing over that which he did not complete, asking himself, how could I not complete it? He says, This is the state of the believer. So, we looked at the hadith a little bit before. This is kind of an explanation to it when the Holy Prophet was saying the intent of the believer is better than their deed. The intent of the believer is better than their deed and that of the hypocrite or the wicked or the disbeliever, their deed is better than their intent. Now we're getting the explanation. Why? Because the believer has so much intent and so good of an intent, so in terms of quantity and in terms of quality, that when he actually does perform what he intends to perform, it always falls short. This is how much good he wants to do. So because he's falling short, he is in a state of regret. He's in a state of sorrow. He wishes that he could do more. He wishes that he could have done more, but he fell short. So he's in a state of Right? Imam says. If you are meeting this criteria, then we're going to see a hadith that say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward you for your intentions. Because the deeds are falling short. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to give you the reward for that which is even better than your deeds. The reward that you're getting is the reward that is commensurate, that is equivalent to, that is associated with the purity of your intentions, the quality and quantity of your intent, because your deed fell short. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is generous. By His grace, He wants to give you that which, even though your deeds did not match your intent, your intent was good, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives you based on your intent. And so here, Very quick point, and then I go to the next hadith, because I think there's going to be some explanation there. The very quick point that I would add to this hadith is that it needs to be part of who we are to, to use a, the, the cool way of saying it, to think big. Always think big. When you want to do good, do a lot of good. With intent at the level of your knee, if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is promising you that He is going to reward your intent, why not intend a lot? Think big. Aspire to do a lot of good. Aspire to do very high quality of good. You may fall short, 
In fact, based on most hadith, it seems that you're almost guaranteed to fall short. And yet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, I know, and that's why I'm going to reward you for your intentions. Does it mean that we can just get away easily with just intent? So that's the, the key. The key is that I, when I sincerely intend to do something, I get rewarded for it. I cannot really be thinking that I'm not going to really feed 10,000 people. But you know what, God? It's in my intent that I'm going to feed 10,000 people. You know, help me out, get that good job, and I'm going to become very wealthy, and I will help feed 10,000 people. But it's, I don't really mean it. Well, that kind of trickery does not work on God. Okay? And so this is the condition. And we're going to see an example of it. We're going to see it in the next hadith. We're going to start seeing some conditions. You have to do it with sincerity. But if you're sincere in your intent, one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward you for the intent. And two, and we will see that later in the consequences that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala explains and talks about when it comes to intent, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will help you with your intent. Intend the right things. Aspire to do great things. Aim high. Think big. If you're doing it with sincerity, even though it may not seem probable, it may not seem likely, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will come in your help, in your support, and you will achieve a lot more than you thought probable or likely. But do it with sincerity so that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is on your side. Okay? Now the question. So is it enough? So let's see the next hadith. The hadith says. So this is Imam al-Kalam alayhi salam. He says, and he was asked about uh, the niyyah, about the intent of the believer. He says, إِنَّهُ رُبَّمَا إِنْتَهَتْ بِالْإِنْسَانِ حَالَةٌ مِنْ مَرَضٍ أَوْ خَوْفٍ I'll read it in Arabic and then I'll translate. Perhaps there may be a state of illness. There might be a state of fear that strikes the person. And so the deeds cease. You no longer have the deed. You can't perform the deed. You're sick. You're ill. You're out of fear. You're in a state, for whatever reason, you cannot perform the deed that you intended to perform. So the deed stops. But the intent was there. That you wanted to perform this. Something prevented you. But his intentions remain with him. And that is why, the Imam says, and that is why his deeds are better than his, uh, his intentions are better than his deeds. So now if we go back to the hadith that are saying that, you're going to get rewarded for the intent. If this hadith becomes an explanation of the other, then here we have a condition. It's not just that I didn't do it, because I never really meant to do it, or I was lazy. No, the hadith here says something prevented him. Maybe he got sick. Maybe he died before he could complete it. Maybe out of fear, there's something that prevented this person from doing, from accomplishing their full intent. In those cases, the intent is better than the deed. 
And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to reward you for the intent. It's okay that you did not perform the deed. And that's why in our lives, it's not enough if you want to assess the greatness, evaluate the greatness of someone. You can never know. All you have access to is what you're seeing in appearance. This is not what really matters to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is not how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala views the world. This is not what really matters in the scale of humanity. There's something else happening internally. That's where human beings distinguish each from each other. Right? So, inshallah, this is also uh, an important point to keep in mind. A few hadith here that I think we can go over quickly. The first one from Imam Ali alayhi salam, in which he says, in which he says, Tasfiyatul Amali Khayrun Min Al Amal. To purify the deed, to purify your act, is better than the performing of the act itself. Okay, so that's one hadith. I'm going to read them and then we're going to extract something from them. In the next hadith, we have a hadith from uh, Imam Ali alayhi salam again in which he says, so to purify the deed is more difficult than performing the deed. And to purify the intent from anything that corrupts it is much more difficult than a lasting struggle. Okay? أَشَدُّ عَلَى الْعَامِلِينَ مِنْ طُولِ الْجِهَادِ Imam Sadiq salam says, الْإِبْقَاءُ عَلَى الْعَمَلِ حَتَّى يَخْلُصْ أَشَدُّ مِنَ الْعَمَلِ To stay with the deed until it becomes pure is more difficult and therefore better more difficult than ashaddu min al-amal much more difficult than performing a deed or performing the deed all of these hadith are saying the same thing the real point here from these types of hadith the first point that should be clear they're talking about how difficult it is and we talked about this from the beginning this is not an easy thing to do to purify your intent, to act with an intent that is exclusive for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or as close to that as possible. We were open with that and we have a hadith that now when it says shiddah, they're talking about the difficulty. They're saying it's much more difficult to purify your intent than to perform the deed. Okay? The link, however, that I want to make is based on everything that we've been looking at, if what really matters is the intent, if what really matters is how exclusive this is to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and not for any other purpose, not for any other objective, and based on that you get your reward, then is it not worth it? Before I jump from one deed to another and from one act to another, is it not worth it to spend more time on the act that I'm currently in, but to examine my intent, to examine my intentions, 
to purify my intent, to try to reach that sincerity in what I'm doing now, as opposed to just blindly jumping from one ritual to another, from one act to another, from one deed to another. Right? And this is the connection to what I wanted to open up as a next topic that inshallah we're going to get to, not today, we're running out of time. But the topic of this balancing act that we are constantly trying to do between quantity and quality. Well, here I think there's much more of a push on quality. You want to make sure that when you're doing something, you're doing it with the right intent. And that's not easy. It means that it's going to take effort. It means that it's going to take time. It means that it's going to take discipline. So not easy. But is it worth it? And based on what we looked at, it's more than worth it. Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is only looking at the part that is exclusively for Him. That's where you're getting the real reward. It may look like you're doing a lot, but it has no value. It has no worth. It's not transformational. It's not accomplishing the purpose for which you exist. So all of the quantity is not leading to any quality. Whereas a little bit, one deed that is performed properly, that is performed with sincerity, can become a lot more transformational in this world and in the afterlife can mean a lot more for you in terms of reward. And I've talked about this point a lot in the past, but I think it connects to all of this very directly. When we compare ourselves to, let's say, Ahl al-Bayt what are the differences? When I do and they do. I stand to pray, they stand to pray. I help the poor, they help the poor. In external appearance, it does not look like there's any difference. The same act is performed by two people. But in my case, nothing happens. And in their case, something happens. Every time they perform one of these deeds, constantly, they are always in a state of awareness. Always their deeds are done with sincerity. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes that. No one knows. It's between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala considers this to be such an act that is exclusively for him, that it deserves to be known, that this needs to become the standard for human beings to follow. We've talked in the past, for instance, of the Surah Al-Dahr, or Imam Ali salam giving a ring in prayer as an act of charity. The ring itself is not that great. It wasn't the most, you know, uh, rare of rings in the world. It's a normal ring. And what he's doing is a normal act of worship. And many, many people gave a lot of rings specifically because they thought there's something special about giving a ring in prayer. They even made deals with others that they would come and if you want help, you can come and you can take a ring from me while I'm praying. No Qur'an was revealed. Imam Ali performs the deed because he performed it with that sincerity. 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he talks about the Holy Prophet performing the night prayer, Salat al-Layl. He tells him that when you perform Salat al-Layl, you, you specifically, O Prophet, you perform Salat al-Layl, you can reach a praiseworthy rank. Maqaman Mahmuda. I can pray Salat al-Layl every night. I'm not reaching Maqaman Mahmuda. What's the difference? Why can he reach a high level and I can't? Because I'm too stuck at the level of the ritual. I'm performing the ritual, but nothing is happening at the level of the soul. There's no transformation. In his case, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him, literally, there is a transformation happening. Attested, guaranteed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So you reach the rank that is, this is a specific rank that only the Holy Prophet achieves through the night prayer. Salat al-Layl. That is called Al-Maqam al-Mahmud. To me, at my level, of course, I can reach my own Maqam Mahmud. That I, I deserve some praise for what I'm doing, but it's not the Holy Prophet's. And I am performing the same night prayer that he's performing. In fact, you know what? I can try to pray much longer than the Holy Prophet performed, took to perform his Salat al-Layl. Because it has nothing to do with the external appearance of the ritual. It's not standing and sitting as Imam Ali said. It's to what extent this is exclusively done as part of that intimate personal relationship we talked about that you're trying to build with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when you're performing the act. So I'm looking at the uh, next section to see if I stop here. Do I, I had three more hadith that I wanted to go through. Maybe we finish that so that we can start something a little bit more. Uh, we jump to a, 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 this one is very directly related, right? The topic of the quality versus quantity. Since we're in it, let's try to finish it. We all want to achieve the highest amount of output, of good, of benefit, doing the least possible. This is just human nature. This applies to everything we do in our studies, in our business, in our life, people who work out, people who, whatever you're doing. You want to put in the least amount of effort, time, money, and you want to maximize the benefit you get out of it. Right? This just makes good sense. So the discussion quantity and quality to a large extent is really about this. Do I focus on the quality? Quality in a lot of cases, especially when it comes to something like niya. Does niya take time? No. Really, it's a state of mind. It's not even a fraction of a second. You simply need to be in a, the proper state of mind when you perform something. The discussion about quantity versus quality when it comes to a'mal is therefore going to be very worth it. There would be no better deal for us if the end result of this little section is that quality matters more than quantity. Because it would mean that we have a really good deal. That Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala does not want you to just stand and worship or you know, give all your money. Or It's not about the quantity. 
It's, it could be something simple that you're doing, something that doesn't take a lot of time, something that doesn't take a lot of effort, but done properly, an act with a high degree of quality is going to mean a lot more than a whole lot of quantity. A, a large amount, a big amount of acts that don't have that type of sincerity, that type of exclusive intent. Okay, so that's our question. We may think what it is, but as we said, everything we say has to be established as a principle directly taken from Islamic teachings. The first hadith from the Holy Prophet he says, أخلص قلبك So, purify your heart. Make your heart sincere. أخلص قلبك يكفك القليل من العمل Then, a little amount of deeds, of good deeds, will suffice you, will be sufficient. So, a very direct, explicit answer to our question. In another hadith from the Holy Prophet ﷺ, he also says, أخلص دينك يكفك القليل من العمل. Same hadith, but this time he says, your religion, your faith, your belief. And the first one he says, your heart. And a hadith, Um, in Al-Kafi when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala once spoke to Musa alayhi salam Naja Allah tabaraka wa ta'ala Musa alayhi salam he told him Ya Musa ma urida bihi wajhi fakathirun qaliluh wa ma urida bihi ghayri fakalilun kathirun O Musa, those things that are done exclusively for my sake, Wajhallah, we said, is when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about something done for his sake. It's the attributes of God or the aspect of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala with which he faces his creation. Okay, so that's Wajhallah. When something is done exclusively for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, what's done exclusively for me, فَكَثِيرٌ قَلِيلٌ A little amount of it is actually abundant. It's a lot, because it's done exclusively for me. وَمَا أُرِيدَ بِهِ غَيْرِي If the objective, if the purpose of a deed is other than me, فَقَلِيلٌ كَثِيرٌ no matter how much it is, it will always be very little. Assuming that it is good. In this case, there is something good being done. Because it's, there is at least a qalil. If there is no good, then there is nothing. There is no qalil. It will turn into punishment. Here Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you do get something. Because what you're doing is good. The deed is good. But it was not entirely for me. So no matter how much you do, at the end it's قليل. قليل كثير. You do a lot of it, and in truth it's, it's very little. It's very small at the end. What you will be shown, what you will be given in the afterlife is going to be very little. 
and the opposite. You do it for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is himself telling Musa alayhi salam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking. Naja is, munajat is when you speak in whisper, right? In secret between someone and someone. That's munajat. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala naja Musa. This is an intimate revelation to Musa alayhi salam. He tells him, you do for me exclusively, you don't need to do a lot. A little bit that is done exclusively for me is actually abundant. It's a lot. Or as the Holy Prophet says, min al-amal. A little bit of action, a little bit of deed will suffice him. That's all he needs because it's done exclusively with ikhlas. Why? Here we can give a couple of answers and we'll start with this. Obviously, what we said, I think it's evident, it's obvious. I don't want to spend too much more time on this. Everything that is done, if we're saying that there's a lot and there's little, there has to be some sort of measure. What makes it a lot and what makes it little? The obvious component to this is the afterlife, there is reward from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, you want more reward for the same act? Then do it exclusively for me. And I will reward you a lot more. Okay, so that part I think is the clear part. The part that I think could also be taken out from this, that we could learn from this, and it's a little bit deeper. And as I said, I always want you to go back and forth between looking at things entirely spiritually and looking at things as, as they apply to our lives, our daily practical lives. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the Holy Prophet is saying that there is a lot that you get out of a deed. Here it's not said, it's not explicitly stated that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is talking about reward. There could be more. Let's remove it one layer back. Make it one level of abstraction higher. And instead of saying it's the reward, let's just say a benefit. The benefit of something done for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is much more than something where it's mixed up or not entirely done for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's one way to, if we want to use a more generic language. But is this limited to the afterlife? The afterlife would mean that we're only talking about reward. Is this only limited to the reward that you get from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? No. But this requires an understanding of our religion. We believe that our religion, when it gives you a teaching, if you look at all the teachings in Islam, they form a connected network, a connected whole. Every teaching is focused on some dimensions, but it's touching on a lot of others. A teaching, something like, for instance, charity, or something like fasting. There's a, a teaching that is focused on perhaps a dimension that you think, okay, so this is really to work on my discipline. Okay, and what else? But there's also a, so, a social dimension to this. There's a psychological dimension to this. There might be a community or cultural dimension to this. There might be a physical and health dimension to this. And so on and so forth. When you look at all of the teachings together, they, you see that they cover every aspect, every need 
that a human being may have individually and socially, collectively. In fact, most of the teachings, if it's the big teachings, all of them, but let's just say most of the teachings, they cover most of the dimensions. We don't see them because we don't spend enough time understanding them. If you look at the human being's main needs, main dimensions, there's a physical dimension, there's a psychological dimension, there's a social dimension. You will see that in every act, in every teaching, all of them are covered. The more you're aware, the more you can draw, the more you can take from those benefits. If I don't understand the social benefits of praying Salat al-Jama'ah, of praying in a group with others, I'm probably not going to go out of my way to find groups to pray with. Because maybe, I don't know, I have to go out of my way to do it and it's difficult or I'm lazy or I don't have time or whatever the reason may be. This is the same thing for, because I'm so focused thinking that salah is really about me standing and praying to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I fail to see the other dimensions of the prayer. If I don't understand the psychological peace that I get, the psychological strength that I get, the resilience that I get from all sorts of Islamic teachings, I may completely miss it. And while I'm doing those things that have that component, that have that dimension, that are supposed to protect me and make me a lot stronger in that, at the psychological level, for instance, because I'm not aware of them, I do them obliviously, without intent, without awareness, and I don't benefit from the psychological dimension of the teaching. It's there, but I'm not fully benefiting from it. I'm not fully benefiting from it as a, as a society or as a community. I don't benefit from the things that have a communal or social dimension. There are things that have a financial dimension. I miss them completely, and so on and so forth. One way to look at all this is to say everything, if it is really done for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the same acts, but now they're performed for God, i.e. equals, they are performed Islamically. Whatever I'm doing, I'm doing making sure that it's done based on Islamic teachings. If what we just said is true, and that's the whole point of our series, to show how these connections are going to happen between the teachings of Islam, inshallah, if we go long enough and far enough in our series. When you perform the deeds, if everything that you're performing is being performed based on Islamic teachings, our belief is that all of those dimensions are going to be covered. You're going to be a lot stronger psychologically, a lot stronger financially, a lot stronger physically, a lot stronger socially, and so on and so forth. If everything you're doing, you're doing Islamically. You're doing it based on Islamic teachings because they cover those for you. But you have to know. You have to do it in a way that those are covered. So one way to understand this, it might be a lot less effort that you're putting in. Two people are working on their psychological dimension but one person is doing it based on Islamic teachings and the other is not based on what we're saying 
the person who's doing it based on Islamic teachings is going to have to put in a lot less work to reap a lot more benefit. A small amount of it suffices. A small amount of it will be a lot. Whereas the alternative, the non-Islamic version, a lot of it will always be little. You are always going to be missing the other dimensions. I can create the best capitalist system I want in the world that will cover the economic, the financial component fully. Because that's what I'm focused on. But it's not from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It will go against psychology, it will go against spirituality, it will go against society, it will go against the person, the family, the community. But the finance is going to be secured. That's if a human being puts their energy in it and they do it, they might achieve results. But the claim is, our position is, they're always going to be deficient because they can't cover all the bases. And that's the reason we have religion. This is where you're trying to look at religion not only as something that works for the afterlife. There are dimensions in this world that we need to focus on and see how can I extract these teachings and these principles that may, that have always traditionally, customarily been interpreted for the afterlife, for spirituality, to what I'm living, practically to what I'm going through right now. Okay, so this was just a hint. I know this can become a much bigger topic, but I thought as, as a hint and maybe a way to close the loop on this discussion, and inshallah when we come back, I want to take it a step higher. So where we're ending here, what, what we're concluding from all of this, is that intent is more important than action. And quality is more important than quantity. Inshallah, when we meet again, we're going to try to take it one step higher and maybe ask the question. If you haven't thought about it, I'll ask it for you. Is intent all that matters? Because that's where we seem to be going. So we'll look at some hadith and then we'll build from there and we'll move to the other sections and inshallah we'll be done soon with the uh, sincerity topic and we'll move to the next. Questions, concerns, comments, more than welcome. He said the, the Prophet said, if you do an action, ensure it, it is exclusive to God because he doesn't accept, accept it if it is not sincere uh, or if it is not, you know, only sincere. Um, and you said this is a principle because it's repeated uh, over and over. Uh, and one thing that came to my mind is the uh, verse of the Holy Quran where Allah says إِنَّمَا يَتَقَبَّلُ اللَّهُ عَنِ الْمُتَّقِينَ مِنَ الْمُتَّقِينَ So God accepts from the muttaqin, muttaqin being the faithful uh, or the believers uh, but here we have the hadith of the Prophet that says that God accepts from the ones that are sincere meaning the, the mukhlisin 
Yeah. That's the uh, Arabic uh, that you, you gave for. So my question is, you know, is it here the prophet is, is you know, hi, uh, putting the bar a little, a little higher than the Quran, or uh, is, is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying that the faithful are necessarily sincere? Uh, or if not, then how do we reconcile both uh, the saying of the Prophet and the rest of the Quran? Yeah, so this is a good question, technical but good question, uh, that uh, there is a verse of the Quran, uh, and this is part of the discussion between Habil and Qabil. Uh, when Qabil uh, did not like the fact that both of them presented a sacrifice to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepted the two sons of Adam alayhi salam, accepted the sacrifice of one and he did not accept the sacrifice of the other. And so he came to his brother mad, angry, telling him how come Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not accept my sacrifice and he accepted yours. And his brother answered, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he accepts the work or the deeds, he accepts the deeds of those who are fearful of God, the pious ones, the religious ones, the God-aware ones. And then he told him, therefore I'm going to kill you. And he said, well, if you're going to lay your hand on me, I will never lay my hand on you, and so on and so forth. So how do we reconcile between this verse that is saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the deeds of those who are muttaqeen, who have taqwa, and this hadith, for instance, which clearly says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala accepts the deeds of those who are mukhlisin. So, um, in short, the answer is there's definitely 100% overlap between the two notions here. And this is, um, that's why I said it's a little bit of a technical question in the sense that sometimes these notions are presented as though they are exclusive, right? It, it's, it applies, for instance, to Islam. It applies to Iman, it applies to Taqwa, it applies to Ikhlas. Where one way to understand it is to say these are ranks, they're like kind of uh, very clear with a beginning and an end. This is where Taqwa begins and where Taqwa stops and then you move to the higher level. Okay, And there are verses in the Quran and there are narrations that sometimes can be used that way. I've used this a little bit here. In the, throughout the, this part of the series when I've talked about ikhlas because ikhlas is obviously a special kind of niyyah. Okay, and sometimes it's all the hadith are not mentioning ikhlas per se, they're just talking about niyyah, intent, or good intent. So clearly ikhlas is a pure intent, a much more exclusive intent. What is taqwa? Taqwa is, it's extremely difficult to translate taqwa. I've looked at, at it from all sorts of different angles, and I cannot tell you that this is a best term. Usually it's translated as pious, God-fearing, religious. But what's, what's taqwa? What does it really mean? So a part of taqwa includes fear. That word means that there is fear in your religiousness, in your piety, in your piousness. There has to be fear. So this is, as they call, a reverential fear, right? You understand Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you understand his might, you understand his, his, his grandeur, his majesty. And so the more you understand that, the more you should feel fear. Of course you should feel fear. That's one. There's also waqayah. There's also 
you know, being proactive to seek immunity before the bad thing happens. Someone who has taqwa is not going to be going and playing with fire. Right? You stay away from uh, in the first place so that you never have to deal with the fire after. You kept a buffer zone. Right? You create a situation in which you never fall into. So of course this person has much more religiousness, a lot more piety. When we have a hadith, and inshallah one day we'll talk about this, this relationship, one way to understand uh, you know, the different categories of ahkam that we have. There are things that are haram and halal. Right? And then we have mustahab and makruh. There are things that are prohibited or obligatory. And then we have things that are recommended. It's kind of left to you, right? Okay, but another way to understand it, and this is explained in a lot of hadith, they tell you, especially the imams, when they talk to their closer companions, and they come and they tell, they, they talk about these mustahabat and sometimes the companions, you know, like, okay, I understand this is mustahab, this is uh, something that I should probably do, it's recommended, but do I really have to do it? You know, and so the imams talk to them. And the same thing for the makruh. He comes to the imam, he tells him, I know this is makruh, but you know, how, how makruh is it really? In other words, I really kind of feel like doing it. I know it's makruh, but I want to do it. So is it okay? Or, and this is where you see the imams have a different way of talking to their closer companions than they talk to the masses. Makruh simply means you can do it and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not punish you for this. You can do it. It's not something we recommend that you do, but you can do it. But then they tell their companions, they tell them, look at it as though there is a fire. Literally, they say that in some of the hadith. They say there is a fire there. Do you want to be walking right beside the fire? Or do you want to keep a buffer zone? We want you, the imam tells them, we want you to have a buffer zone. So that if you slip, you don't slip in the fire. You slip in the makruh. You slip where it might be a little warmer, but you're not falling in the fire. You fall in the makruh. So stay away from the makruh. Right? This is taqwa. Taqwa is that you have that higher level of faith, awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that you preserve yourself not even going close to what is forbidden, that you take all the precautions. This is at the practical level, what taqwa looks like. Taqwa is a huge topic. Entire volumes are written on what taqwa means, and specifically taqwa in the Qur'an. Okay? That, that's a huge topic the social benefits and the social ramifications, the individual ones, and so on and so forth. But very quickly, I'm, I'm saying all of this to say, it's a, these are overlapping uh, notions. The same thing with Islam. We would say, the majority of us, you would think that the term Islam means the first level of entering the faith. The majority of us, I think if you ask, you know, are you a Muslim, are you a Mu'min, what are you? The majority of us would say, no, I'm a Mu'min. You know, a Muslim is maybe someone who has just accepted the shahada, but, you know, they don't know much about religion. They've said their shahada and that's it. So Islam is kind of the first level. And then after that, you get into Iman. And then maybe after that, you get into Taqwa, right? A lot of us, this is how we view religion. And that's okay. That's one way to see it. But when you go, and this is the technical part of the discussion. If you actually read the verses of the Quran, you see Islam has many levels. There's a level of Islam that is much higher than Iman. Yes, Islam is the person who has just entered, but it goes much higher than someone who has faith and who is a believer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says about Ibrahim alayhi salam and his son, when he was tested, 
He says, فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَ وَتَلَّهُ لِلْجَبِينَ When they became fully Muslim, if I want to use the terminology this way or the wording this way, and he put the knife on, on him to kill him, to perform the, to, to what he saw in the dream, the revelation. This is your test, Ibrahim. You have to go and sacrifice your son. So he told him, can I sacrifice you? Are you okay with that? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants me to sacrifice you. He says, my father, do as you were instructed. You will see that I'm of those who are patient. Don't worry, do it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, when he put him there and he had the knife on him and they became fully Muslim. Right? فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَ They were not right before. This is a new level that they reached in their faith. فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَ The test has been passed. Proven with a deed. فَلَمَّا أَسْلَمَ وَتَلَّهُ الْجَبِينَ This is when they reach this level of Islam. That you and I have not reached. Can Islam be when you enter religion? Yes. It's proven in another verse. قَالَتِ الْأَعْرَابُ The Arabs have said, we have belief, we have faith. You have no faith, do not say that we have faith. وَلَكِنْ أَسْلَمْنَا Say we have become Muslims, we have entered into Islam. وَلَمَّا يَدْخُلِ الْإِيمَانُ فِي قُلُوبِكُمْ Belief has not really entered your hearts yet. You've said the words, you uttered the words, and you entered into the religion, but you're not fully believers yet. Okay, so is there an Islam that is, when you first enter, yes. Is there a much higher one? Yes, it's the same word. This is where the notions can overlap. And they're not exclusive. It's not that you are one or the other, that you are all of them. When you are a higher level, you are all of them, all of the ones below. They're not exclusive. Inshallah, this was clear. But okay. Any other questions, concerns, comments? So the question is, uh, is there kind of a, a specific process to go through for the purification of the niyyah to achieve higher levels of intention and sincerity um, or not? And one way is maybe sitting and you know examining your life and why you're doing things. 
short answer I think is no, there is no specific way. Generally speaking, like everything else, it is like a muscle that you have to work out and it takes time and it takes discipline. But like everything else that is of the psychological and the spiritual dimension, you can also do it in one jump and one leap. Um, you mentioned the prayer. I will use that as an example. There is a scholar who says, when he talks about niyyah and ikhlas, he said that um, this is something that people generally struggle with. And he says, I struggle with it. It's something that I struggled with, but I think Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has helped me and illuminated me. And now it's much easier for me to act in a sincere way. How? Something happened to him. He says, one day I would go to this mosque, and this is an old mosque, almost falling apart, and no one would go ever to pray there. And it's usually empty. And I thought, I'm doing it with good intentions. And so he says, one day I'm praying, it's night, it's cold. Outside, there's a storm going on, and I'm all alone praying. And while I'm praying, I hear some sounds behind me. So suddenly, I started praying much better. My prayer became a lot better. A lot more focused, a lot better. It looks much nicer from the outside. Because there might be someone who's looking and he's a big scholar and what are they going to say and so on and so forth. And that's what he wants people to think. So he's open that this is what he thought and this is how he finished his prayer. He says, I finished my prayer. And then finally I looked after doing all of my taqibat and doing everything really well. Finally I looked because nothing was happening. No one came, no one said salam, you know, obviously. Something is happening that maybe the person doesn't want to come. I look behind to see what's going on. And I notice that there's an old black dog sitting beside the entrance of the masjid. So the storm made him look for a shelter. He entered inside the masjid and he's sitting wet beside the entrance of the masjid. To him, that was all it took. Because like every time today, this was years ago. Every time today a thought crosses my mind that maybe I want to do something so that people praise, so that people see, so that people compliment, I remember how I lost those prayers to a dog because I was trying to impress that dog. If I had prayed to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, only and exclusively, my prayer would not have changed. And I would not care whether the person comes in or not. In fact, I would probably should be praying a lot better when there is no one. And when there are people seeing me, I could pray a little bit faster. So that for me, between myself and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, you know, in fact, I usually pray much better alone. In front of people, I will pray maybe not to the same level of, the same degree of attention to detail in my prayer and so on and so forth. Just for me, no one knows. Maybe people will still say, wow, his prayer is so good. In his case, it took one thing. And there was a jump. 
It's not like he sat and examined and that one instant was enough to re-examine his whole life. And from there on, now he had something to fall back to. Every time he, he's about to do something that he thinks maybe the intention here is for the people, he thinks, I'm trying to impress an old, wet, black dog. And now suddenly the meaning changes completely and I'm not going to fall for that. Okay, so is there kind of a process? Yes, of course, as, as usual, but these become recommendations. People have tried this, have tried that, and this works and that. There is no cookie-cutter process that this is what you follow. Yes, you're supposed, and we will talk about that, inshallah, when we talk about character building, the importance of this muhasabat al-nafs, examining everything you do and how you do it and reflecting on it. And this is part of the topic of aql that we talked about when we began this series and we're going to come back to it. Again, your ability to reflect and reflect about yourself. That's the most important part. The rest becomes secondary. So, can you do that? Of course you can do that, but you can also do it in one, uh, one jump, in one step, if it's enough. But this is someone that, you know, when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if He wants to put the light in someone's heart, that's it. You know, it'll happen in one step, in one instant, in one shot, and that's it. But yeah, generally speaking, that's why we keep repeating and saying, this is not something that is easy, it's not something that is intuitive. So how does it work? We'll talk about a few tips and tricks at the end. That's the last section of this topic. The topic of sincerity is going to end with, from the ahadith, not from what I recommend, from the ahadith, what do they say is going to help with this? And you have one thing in there that is really working for you. Much more for you than for me, for instance. And that is youth. But inshallah, we're going to come and, and talk about that. The younger you are, the more sincerity you can achieve because you're much cleaner. Inshallah, we're going to come back to that at the, at the very end of this section before moving to action. Yeah, inshallah. Any other questions, comments? We're good? Excellent. Wa sallallahu ala Sayyidina Muhammadin wa ala alihi tayyibin al-tahirin.